Coming to you from the Underground Studio, this is the Sipping Social Podcast. My name is Mike Caro. I'm here with my boy and certified bourbon steward, Garrett Turnquist. Yo. We've also got our stellar producer on the mic, Johnny. Say what up. What up? We're here to dive into all aspects of the restaurant industry. We truly love what we do and love talking about it. We're going to pour, sample, and review anything you need to know about. Pour yourself a cocktail and join us on this journey. Let's Let's go. go. <laughs> that's a cool way to enter this um guys uh thanks for joining us for what we're about to do we're about to do something cool this is the uh, another first for the sipping social podcast uh we got a return guest that's going to join us for something that's really really neat uh something that i consider very special when it comes to doing my job and getting to know garrett and uh hollywood garrett as we call him over here it's hollywood but, g just uh, to be clear all right hollywood g but uh he's going to introduce our, our guest that's joining us right now and what we're about to do, and this is going to be awesome. Uh, we got Sean Josephs from Pinhook, Whoop. who Whoop. is, is it okay to call you the, the owner? How, how, should we, how should we describe you? As? Yeah, I guess co-founder or yeah. an owner, since there are a couple other of us, but yeah. So the most important owner, Sean Josephs of Pinhook. <laughs> and the, Definitely and, the most important. And to be honest, with like, for me, like the face of the, the face of that franchise. So uh, Sean is... Um, I consider him a friend. He's also the master blender. He does. He's like in charge of all sorts of stuff, and we get the chance to sit down with him uh, via Google Chats and talk everything whiskey, everything pinhook. And most exciting thing about this is that we get to do a single barrel pick with Boom. the most important owner of pinhook of pinhook eight year rye. Before we get into that, I would like to talk more about um, pinhook as a brand. So we did a live show, what feels like five years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sean was able to talk to us about like a little bit about what Pinhook was about. Sean, tell us like uh, why Pinhook started and what made this whole thing become a reality. Yeah, I mean the biggest thing, which I don't have to make it too long, but I have to go back a little bit. I was, I don't know if this has happened to any of you guys, or I'm sure it's happened to someone who will listen to this. I graduated from college. I went to teach English in Japan for a year. I lived in Telluride, Colorado for two years. I worked for the ski mountain and I worked for the golf course. And then I thought I was supposed to get a real job. And then I ended up in New York because I'm originally from Boston. So like anyone I knew was on the East Coast and I got an entry level job that paid me $24,000 a year in New York City in 19, I guess it was like 99, 2000. And somehow before I knew it, I was an account manager working in advertising with a specialty in fashion and beauty. You're good, you are good looking. <laughs> no, it wasn't like that. I was actually in meetings with a cosmetic company as we had to sit there and talk about the lipstick colors mm. um, for the season. And I just remember there were moments where I caught myself and I was like, what happened? I don't even understand. Like I was, I was skiing. I worked for the golf course. And now I'm like, I was like, what has happened to me? I never wanted to do any of this. And then all of a sudden you're like, it's all the way along. And you're like, been doing it for five years. And you're just like, holy shit, like this has happened. And I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. Yeah. A lot of Um, the listeners have that same story. They were talking about lipstick colors and they're like, what's going on with my life? Yeah. I don't know about that. (laughs) I'm sure other people, right. 
ended up like how did i end up doing this i thought i was going to do that yeah, or i was yeah. interested in this i didn't even know what i was going to do but i just knew it shouldn't be this this is wrong but i don't know what to do and my big lucky thing was that um in 2004 in the summer my wife who's from new orleans but lived in spain for a number of years opened a spanish tapas bar in new york city called tia paul it's still there it's it'll be 20 years old this summer and i guess it was like two months after her restaurant opened i got fired from my job you chose the, was he chose to, the wrong lipstick i i don't think the wrong shade of red <laughs> the, red, the wrong shade of red <laughs> <laughs> you're to gone be, yeah maybe it was a bad line of copy i wrote for it who knows <laughs> um and so i i got fired and she was paying herself her and her partner were paying themselves like 400 dollars a week you're just your your classic like just opened a restaurant no money doing all the jobs and um i got fired from my job i was supposed to have like this the salary and insurance and all that type of stuff and i just ended up being a food runner at her restaurant because i didn't know what to do but i also didn't want to do lipstick anymore and so uh, well, you guys are in restaurants. I got bitten by the bug. I loved it. I always played sports. I love the energy. I love the camaraderie. I, I like the physicality. I just loved the whole thing. And that was my moment, like where I had my calling, I guess, where I was like, this is what I want to do. I didn't really know enough about restaurants to know in what way. Like I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to be an owner or I'm going to be a GM or a bar manager. I didn't know what any of that was but i was just like this is it for me this is going to be my thing and did, did, I she, ended did up, she pay you what's that did she pay you as a food runner or you just yeah that's another so that's a good point so the one thing we learned pretty quickly was it was pretty weird for me as the husband <laughs> of the owner to be in the tip pool like yeah i was tipped <laughs> out like everyone else but it was pretty odd and so and i was having fun and my wife was like this is terrible I can say it laughingly now, but it did almost cost us our marriage. Like we had just gotten married. She's opening a restaurant, her pictures in the New York times. She's having this tremendous success. And I'm like working as a food runner. That's <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> like not great. Um, so we figured out that I had to get the hell out of there. And the thing that made the most sense to me was since I was, had decided that I was going to be in the restaurant business was I needed to see it at the highest level possible. So I went to work at a restaurant that's no longer open in New York called Chanterelle, but it was at one point a four-star restaurant, a French restaurant, and um, quickly learned I had never worked in fine dining before. It was terrifying, like terrifying. Like this was, you had to um, do the proper service with bread where you use a sauce spoon and a fork to grab, like you don't have tongs, you have to create tongs. I don't know if you guys have ever done that before. Mm. And you have to like set them in your hands in this exact way, but you weren't allowed to preset them outside. You had to do it in the dining room and you had to pick one up and then grab the other in the right way. And it was, my hands were trembling. Like I was like, you know, it was, it was a really amazing and scary, challenging experience. And then I also realized I didn't know anything about wine. I mean, I already knew I didn't know anything about wine, but then I was like, oh, wow, this is a problem. Like you have to know about wine if you're going to be useful in a restaurant of that caliber, right? So I was like, that's it. I'm going to become, I'm going to learn all the wine shit. And the sommelier there was, uh, is a master sommelier, this guy, Roger de Gorn. And he took me under his wing and 
I got my sommelier certificate from the American Sommelier Association, and I also am a certified sommelier through the Court of Master Sommeliers. Wow. How long did it take you to get that? From, two from years. When you started it, two years? Okay. But I was just, you have to understand, like, it's all I did. Like, I would get off work at one in the morning, study my flashcards till four in the morning, like, go to bed, go back to work. I was in wine tasting groups, blind tasting groups, going to wine class. I mean, I was just completely immersed in it. And so yeah, you have that's to be. all you're doing, you know. And then... I actually wanted to work somewhere as a sommelier though. And Chanterelle didn't have a, wasn't a big enough restaurant to have an actual wine team. So I went to work at a restaurant called Per Se, which at the time was this like 2006 was ranked the eighth best restaurant in the world. Thomas Keller of the French Laundry. It was his New York restaurant, four stars. They had a five person like wine team, but at Per Se, no matter your expertise, you had to start as a food runner. So I well, you nailed that my, one. Yeah. So I'd, I'd got, gotten up to being a captain at Chanterelle, and then I'd go back to being a food runner. And then after I was at Per Se for like four or five months, I got the chance to be the sommelier at um, a restaurant called Blue Water Grill in Union Square. It was a huge restaurant, like $20 million in revenue, great wine list. And so that was my first job as a sommelier. So you took all that and were like, well, fuck this shit. Let's open a whiskey distillery. Yeah, I mean. The, <laughs> I'm just what, kidding. What I mean, the, the, way was, more than that, but. Pretty much everyone I know in the wine world has some other pet thing that they like. Maybe they're yeah. really into ciders from, you know, from France, or maybe they're really into sake, or they just geek out on something else. Because you've already you already know how to do the thing, right? Like you you know how to learn things, you know how to taste things. And back in two thousand four, two thousand five, I mean, American whiskey was pretty compelling. So like I had a friend who was super into it. Um, in fact, he was collecting, I call him Tater Zero. Like he was, he had <laughs> 400 and something bottles of American whiskey in 2004. Like talk about someone who was ahead of the curve. And he yeah. was buying Blantons from the Japanese market and from London online. Like he had amassed this amazing collection. And so every time I'd hang out with him, which was a lot, he'd be like, try this, try this, try this. And, you know, even though, it's dumb to get on the whole Pappy thing, but the 13-year Van Winkle Rye, not what they make now, what they used to make um, from the Bernheim Distillery was phenomenal. And that was back when like it was $50 a bottle retail and available. And so I'm working in a restaurant at Per Se. People are opening and ordering five and $10,000 bottles of wine. It's like kind of absurd. And some of them do deliver, not at that level, but you're like, yeah, that's really, really good. But then I'm tasting this fifty-year, fifty-dollar, sorry, fifty-dollar Van Winkle thirteen-year rye, being like, "Damn, this is pretty, pretty good. Like, this is really, really good quality relative to price, which is how you are taught to think about wine, right? Right. That's the whole thing about wine, right? If you're a wine professional and someone, they never lead with price, and they come in, and they say, "Oh, taste this Oregon Pinot Noir," right? And you taste it, and you're, you know, you do the thing, and then you're like. Yeah, no, it's good. What is it? What's the wholesale? And then they're like 20 bucks. And you're like, oh, now I really like it. But if they said 50 bucks, you're like, no, I don't like it. Because it's not just about whether it's good. It's about whether it's good relative to what you have to pay for it. Yeah. And bourbon in 2004, 2005, dramatically over delivered. There was a product called Vintage. It's a label from Kentucky, uh, KBD, Kentucky Bourbon Distillers, which is Wellet now. And they had a 
a rye whiskey called Vintage. And there was a vintage 21-year rye and a vintage 23-year rye, and they were phenomenal. And the vintage 21-year rye was $34 wholesale. Jeez. And the 23-year rye was like $54 wholesale. Those bottles go for like ten dollars and $15,000 now. And I was ordering them. I mean, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but when I opened my first bourbon bar, I was opening, I was ordering those every week. How could you not? Yeah, because they and they kept getting depleted. I was like, someone's like, what should I try? And like, try this. And so we'd sell a bunch of it and the bottle would be empty. And then I would just pick up the phone and be like, hey, could you send me two more bottles of vintage 21 and two more bottles of vintage 23? You know, just like cranking. So anyway. Thanks for the invite, by the way. I appreciate that. <laughs> I, hey, if I had known you back then. <laughs> um, so I kind of got to the point where I understood what it was to be a sommelier. I knew what it looked like to be even like a beverage director for a large restaurant group and oversee other sommelier, like all that type of stuff. And it just didn't seem that interesting to me. And as it turned out, my wife's business partner who owned the building where her Spanish restaurant is owned a building in Brooklyn and he wanted to open another restaurant there. And he approached me about doing something. My wife's from new Orleans. I'd spent a lot of time around, uh, you know, kind of Southern food and Southern culture. I'd really fallen in love with bourbon just felt like there were enough wine bars. And so I ended up opening a bourbon bar in Brooklyn, New York in 2008 called Char Number no. 4, which is really the first American whiskey bar and restaurant in America that wasn't in Kentucky. And even in Kentucky at that time, there weren't really many places that actually had like a huge selection, right? Because they were around it all the time, but they weren't celebrating it. And so the restaurant just completely blew up. Like we were GQ, three best places to drink bourbon in America, although there were like five places. So the competition wasn't too stiff, but it was like <laughs> big fish in a little pond. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody needs to know uh, how many total. Yeah, we'll, we'll cut that part you out. Need, you don't need to yeah. know how many total. <laughs> we were Esquire 50 best bars in America. We were New York Magazine 10 best new restaurants. Tight. We were the only Brooklyn restaurant. We hit the Brooklyn thing before Brooklyn became this like handlebar mustache, rooftop gardens, suspenders, you know homemade pickles, like all that whole thing. So we were like ahead of the Brooklyn curve. We were ahead of the bourbon curve, you know, and it was just like a perfect storm. You know, you have to remember too, right? When I opened in 08, there was, that's back where there was one Maker's Mark, there was one Knob Creek, there was one Basil Hayden. Like it was really just the nine big distilleries in Kentucky that were making 95% of the product and like almost no the non-distiller producers that I remember were that were newer were like Whistlepig had just come out, High West had just come out, Hudson Baby Bourbon was around, Stranahan's out of Colorado was around, but there was almost no craft distilleries. So that was what kind of led to the next thing, which was, um, you know, what eventually became Penhook was the thing that really struck me and so much of it, and I think it's what's cool about like if you kind of go on a journey is I had a different perspective because I came from wine. And the thing that really kind of threw me off about bourbon is I didn't understand why it was all made as a homogenous flavor profile, because that's the opposite of how good wine is made. Good wine is all about the celebration of the harvest and the vintage variation is what everyone loves. Like 
the way the grapes grew in a given year dictate how the wine is and some are better than others. And, but it's kind of also the magic that that one thing will never exist again. And there was really no one doing, you got to remember too, right? No one was doing barrel finishes. Single barrel picks weren't a thing. Like it was pretty boring, right? Like as like, I loved bourbon, but like the category, like no one was really doing anything innovative. So myself and two friends of mine who are not in the industry, but love bourbon, we're like, we should do our own bourbon. Like, I feel like we can do something unique and really add to the conversation. And you know, the good thing was back then, barrels were super cheap. So we founded Pinhook by buying 20 barrels of three-year-old MGP bourbon for $465 a barrel. So we started the company for $9,000 oh and then storage was a dollar bought- per barrel per month. So it was like $240 a year. Like that was our, that was our upfront cost to start. Yeah. Yeah, just just move the couch cushions across and find some change, and you afford yeah. that. Yeah, that's um, so cheap. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't nothing, but it's obviously like when people think about having a bourbon company, it wasn't a big number to just like, you know, at least, yeah. hey, we own these barrels now. Worst case right? scenario, you just drink them, right? That was our thought too. It really was. Yeah. We're like, it's not that crazy amount of money. Now we have all these barrels. If nothing else, we'll have bourbon for the rest of your the life. Time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like it's it seemed like a. It seemed like there was no way to lose a dollar a month per barrel to to age it for storage. For yeah. Storage, yeah. When when you guys yeah. got your first barrels, did you guys uh, hand stamp them a certain way, or was there a certain process to like let everybody know where you were storing them that they were? No. So there are two things, right? One was MGP back then it was still called Lawrenceburg Distillers, and they were not open to the public. And they weren't even open to people who bought the barrels. So we couldn't, we would have been allowed to store our barrels there, but we obviously wanted to actually touch our barrels, right? So, and I think more importantly, which sounds now kind of like, oh, of course, but back then it was like, for us, Kentucky was like the place. Like we want to be in Kentucky. Like we understand the rules. We know you can make bourbon anywhere in America, but like Kentucky's where all the magic happens. Like we want to hang out in Kentucky. So we shipped our barrels um, from, from MGP or Lawrenceburg Distillers to, um, to a place called Strong Spirits in Bar- Bardstown, which is actually still there. And at the time, they were the only people who were set up for, you could store your barrels there, they could bottle for you, you know, they had some tanks, they could do filtration, they could proof them, and then you could legally sell them to a distributor. So we shipped our barrels there. There was nothing romantic about it. It was a massive warehouse. Everything's just palletized. They were storing other stuff there too. Like there was, there were pallets of like Alize. You know, it wasn't <laughs> like, it wasn't like, oh, look at the magic rickhouse. Like we just had twenty barrels sitting on some pallets. Um, but for us, it was the most fun thing in the world because we started. And to be honest, too, we thought we were pretty smart, right? We were like, we told our wives that we had a bourbon business now. And that we needed to go to Kentucky on the regular to like check in on our barrels and yeah, I, do, I do that once a year. It's my wife. Too. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so we just we just upped it to four times. And <laughs> but but what happened that was cool was, you know, other than this idea of so going back to the wine thing, the main idea I had, even though we had no thought on like, well, how does that come together in terms of the packaging, the name, et cetera, was we're gonna make vintages of bourbon like wine we're going to look at our mature barrels as our harvest and we're going to blend 
the best whiskey we can every year, thereby producing a vintage that will never be replicated. And we're not trying to hit a profile. We're just trying to make the best thing we can with the barrels we have. And so, and that is still the number one thing that makes us different. I mean, I think there are now more people doing versions of that, but I think we're still the only ones that will say like, hey, we make people do batches, which I consider a little bit different. But to say we produce an annual vintage for the year, that's a, you know, an expression of, you know, whether it's our rye barrels or our bourbon barrels or cast strength. And every year we kind of start over, right? And make a new vintage. And part of it what's so fun to me is that conversation around if people like our magenta wax, which is our high proof, you know, it's like, yeah, I really like their high proof, but there's something about the 2022. It's my favorite. Like that conversation is a wine conversation. Mm. It's never been a bourbon conversation. So I think in these like subtle ways, we brought elements of how you talk and think about wine to bourbon. One of my friends that I founded the company with Jay, his best friend from high school, Jamie, who you know, grew up in thoroughbred horse racing. And so we would always stay at Jamie's house when we would go check in on our barrels. And Jamie was just explaining pin hooking, which is a big part of his business, buying a baby thoroughbred based on its lineage to sell it for a profit when it's mature. And we were like, that's a cool name. And also like we're pin hooking bourbon. Like we connected the dots, like that's what we're doing. We're buying something young to sell it when it's mature. Turns out the tobacco industry uses the term the logging industry. It's actually like a word that gets used a lot. And actually I think started with tobacco and the horse industry borrowed it from them. But um, so the other thing though, that we loved about it, still love about it was the idea was to be transparent because that wasn't a common thing in bourbon at the time to say, we're telling you that we don't have a distillery. We're telling you that we buy barrels from other for blenders and bottlers. We're not distillers. And I don't know if you guys remember Templeton, which is probably the biggest snafu. Oh, I, I that, love that story. I think it's hilarious. Uh, but there were many others. And there are many other people, not even snafus, but just where they, if you looked at their bottle, they're really trying to make it seem like they have a distillery somewhere. John, tell me, tell me I'm wrong. But like when we look at bottles and then we get like the information on the actual label, it says like, this is the mash bill. This is where it was made. Like the transparency is like very refreshing. Yes. Yeah, hundred percent. Then you look on the back and it says distilled and bottled in Indiana. Yeah, I mean that's fine. But like when when they give you like all the information all yeah. up front, like it's 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 like a, it's it's nice to see because you can really understand what's what's happening. And you can like learn more about that than you can by like trying to guess like where this product was made for made from or or how it was how it was blended or mm -hmm. whatever. I think yeah. it's, I think it's, uh, I, I, th I still think it's rare to see that. Yeah. And it's interesting because for me, I mean, think about it. like, I mean, my job was not that dissimilar to yours, right? I was owning and operating a bar and I was talking to suppliers, talking to sales reps, all that type of stuff. I found the lack of transparency to just be frustrating. And then when I, if I ultimately found out the real story, I was just like, I don't even care. I just find it more annoying that you're not telling me or yeah. that you're trying to make something up. Like, Agreed. just tell me what it is. And so that, I think that was really a big piece of what we were trying to do is say, well, it doesn't have to be that way. There's nothing wrong with being 100% transparent about every single aspect of what you do and how you do it. 
Um, and it's just a preference, but I think it's one that people appreciate about how we go about. No, I think they do too. And then, and then, I mean, the, I mean, the real judgment is like when they actually try it, like, like, yes, so I learned this stuff about it and then I try it and I think it's, I think it's good or I think it's bad, but then like, there's like appreciation for, like, I think you, I think you get bonus points for the transparency when you try it. Like, I think it's always good to do that. I I think it's a nice added touch, especially for the consumer who might not really know a lot about mash bills. Like you being in the industry, you know, Sean and where he comes from knows about that as a drinker, like you're not going to necessarily know about it. But if you see it's a four grain whiskey and you know, it's heavy on the wheat. Well, now you know what you should be looking for, for what your palate. Yeah. If you liked it, then you steer away. Yeah. Buy more. If you didn't like it, you steer away. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think it's good for the customer. So, Sean, I got to ask you about the the glass you're drinking your whiskey out of. What a what do you call that in the bourbon world? Is it? I mean, is it these are glass? these are just little port. This is a port glass. Okay. And I think I just find like I think um, Glen Cairns will get like a little beat up, and these are also just economical. But I like them. So we we get to have lunch with. This is a sick brag right here. This yeah, it's kind of a brag. It's a, <laughs> with the with the master uh, distiller from Mount Fuji, um, Jota Tanaka, oh wow, f- fantastic guy. It was it was kind of fell on our lap. We got to have lunch with him, drink his whiskey, and he made everybody drink out of. He kicked that, all the Glen Cairns out. He kicked the Glen Cairns out. I made don't like everybody them. drink out of that style of glass, um, and he had good reason for it. And it was mainly to let the aroma do its thing, kind of like wine and what you're correlating, you know, and and what Pinhook comes from. I don't know. Like I'm not here to bash on the Glen Cairn. I just don't find I've tasted a lot of my whiskey, obviously. And I feel like it's those glasses aren't very expressive of whiskey. And I don't know, part of me part of what I wonder is they were made as scotch glasses. I don't really drink a ton of scotch. I mean I'm not like I have nothing against it and I've had a decent amount. But scotch is generally like eighty to eighty six to ninety proof. And I wonder if these. I wonder if the Glen Cairn is better for lower. Proof. Like I haven't really played around with it. I just well, it's because the Japanese that. whiskey is lower proof too. So you think like he'd be like on. I mean, a lot of Japanese and Scotch are like a lot of correlations. It's just interesting. Um, every single place I've gone to that's a high end tasting has used the same uh, port classes that you're talking about, John. Not that's the, not, not the Glen Cairn. Also, we don't have any Glen Cairns here. We uh, we don't have any pork glasses over here, but what we do have is some bourbon. <laughs> yeah, and I think or some oh, it's, oh, rye. it's rye, right? Yeah. I think it's some whiskey. I think is it time to drink it some is whiskey? A whiskey. Should yeah, we have some, should we have some whiskey? We should probably try some just to loosen the lips. So this is a really cool experience. Um, the 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 ability to uh, do a single barrel pick we've talked about before is really really interesting. Um, you get to try a couple of different barrels. Uh, if you're at the distillery, you get to try some, like maybe even drill a hole in a barrel, pull some samples. Uh, with Pinhook, we get the samples sent to us. We now get to pick a eight-year rye from Pinhook with the most important owner, Sean. It's a badass. Which is, I've never done anything like before. It's first for us. Yeah. So first for um, Sean. Which uh, which glass are you reaching for first? And that's the first I'll pour. I have them in order thirty. 44, 30, 40, 30, 44 30, 36. first. All right, let's go 30, 44. Do you want to, I want, uh, normally, have, oh my gosh, are these taped down? Use rubber glue? I got it. So I'll just say real quick too. So this, these are 95.5 MGP rye. Um, <clears throat> probably what would make them unique, 
What's not unique is that it's MGP 95.5, which many, many people have. What is unique... It's like the gold standard of Rye. Like it's, it's the gold standard. Yeah. What is unique and probably so critical in the American whiskey in general is the aging environment. So we bought these barrels when they were a little north of one year old, and they've been aging the rest of the time at Castle and Key, where you guys have visited and you understand that it's a pretty unique aging environment with these brick and concrete warehouses. I know, for example, the barrel entry proof on these is 125. And there was a single barrel, a seven-year single barrel last year of rye that was bottled at 104 proof. So think about that. I mean, it dropped. It dropped 21 points from barrel entry. So I think ours was 108. 109. Yeah, 109. again, yeah, so, so like, yeah, 109, low. which is crazy. So again, it's really hard to guess at these proofs, but you know they could be as high as 117 and as low as 104. Um, and that's just the nature of evaporation, colder warehouses where you might evaporate more, um, more alcohol than water, a humid environment where you're going to get maybe some moisture entering the barrels. Yeah, the, the Castle and Key aging uh, and proof levels, we talked about a little bit on the previous podcast after we came back from Castle and Key. And it's very interesting, like the moisture level and the just the, the terroir of the spot, how they lose proof compared to like 40 miles down the street. Um, okay, so we're going to do the first, the first, the first pick uh, that we're going to try. And um, the nice part about us being really good friends is that you, when you sample all of these, these barrels, you're just hammered for like six months straight, right? Because you're just trying all these barrels. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and you know what's funny? I, I really, I separate tasting and drinking. And when I taste, I always spit, obviously. Well, yeah. When we did the the True Blend, um, I was, uh, it was like a like a whirlwind of activity with us sampling and clinking glasses and jeersing. And then Sean's over here like swishing in his mouth and spitting it into a jug. Um, I was just joking about that, but it is nice that um, you. So you, when you when you pick, you picked. I don't know how, how many how many barrels did you did you did you separate from your from your um, your batch to decide that they're going to be these are single barrel choices. So just just to hype or, this or up randomly. a little bit, let's hype this up a little. Yeah, there will only be sixteen eight year old single barrels in the entire country. Jesus Christ! <laughs> All right. Um, well, it's nice. And to, yeah, so. Everyone got three samples, so 16 times three is 48. So we pulled 48 samples, and we really just pulled them at random because it's the randomness is the fun of it. We're not trying yeah. to say like, well, if we pull barrels from here, they'll be like this. It's it's there's enough randomness even in barrels that are next to each other anyway. So, right. but you tried them all the, before you sent them out, though, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, we tried them because the main thing that is like different. You know, palettes are different, and the main thing I want is variety. Like I could say, like if I tasted three and sent them to you, I could have my favorite. Doesn't mean it has to be your favorite, but it, what's more important to me is that you'd want three distinct samples. That's what makes it interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Well, and you, I think also like uh, I mean, you don't need to like figure out what my palette is and send me ones that I like, but like you also want the buyer to be really interested in what they're picking. Because if they're not interested in it, then they're either going to say no, or they're if they really like, it, then they're going to sell the shit out of it because they're so excited about it. Yeah, so, and I think it's while it's unpredictable and quality levels vary, 
um, we obviously try to make sure that each set has something at least that we perceive of as really high quality. quality. Yeah, that's for sure. Right. So when you pull, so you pulled out 48 samples randomly mm -hmm. and then you tried them all and said, yes. and then did you say, did any of those were like, you know what, this one might be better in a blend or we're going to, and then pick like another couple to fill out that single barrel or like how, how in depth do you even get into that? Or if you don't want to so talk about it, it's fine. I, I would say, first of all, this age of 95.5 rye is, it's pretty, there like aren't any duds. Right. Right. Like when they were younger, you would get some that were a bit rougher. Um, and it doesn't mean that I don't see some variability in quality. But I just honestly, of the 48 barrels, I didn't taste one thing where someone would be like, this is garbage. If I was to think about it, I don't think it would be bad if someone has a set of three to have one that's clearly not as good as the other two. Well, sure, it makes my job easier, that's for sure. But I think it's almost helpful. Like, it's hard to, I think you need some, you need some clear frame of reference, you know, and having one that's maybe like, no, that's fine, or this one, like it's got some good stuff going on, but it's pretty hot. Yeah. You know, or the palate's okay, but the nose is super sharp. Like it's, I, I think it's not bad to have one that like kind of eliminates itself. All right. So you got 16 of these samples coming out. You picked 48. So that uh, quick math means that there's uh, 48 minus 16 that are not being picked. Um, do those just go back into next year's blend or next year's single barrels or what is it? Well, yeah, yeah exactly. So those are, you know, those will go to Sean's basement. Either they'll either be folded into a blend or they like we don't track it because it doesn't matter so next year yeah those samples could be pulled again for single barrels or they could be pulled to potentially go into the blend when we blend we pull you know you experienced this when we did your the true small batch we yeah. pull more samples than we need that's where the variability comes from is by having more barrels than we need and so same thing when i do the blending if i'm going to do a you know if I'm going to do a 40 barrel blend or sorry, the 30 barrel blend and I pull 40 barrels, there are 10 barrels that don't make it. And those just are same thing. They'll come around next year as nine year old product. And, you know, I think it'd be kind of fun to, um, it's a lot of work on your end, but in my head, it's a lot of fun. Like if, uh, if you tracked all those samples that did not get picked and then like a couple of them went back out and like, you like randomly sent the ones that got sent back to you, like we don't want to pick this one and send it back to them as a next year for their pick. And if they picked it or not picked it, uh, and if like, that one extra year made him, made him choose that or, uh, like open the, or just, just, I think that'd be interesting to see like, uh, where that barrel ended up. Uh, if it I'm glad you said that because for up to this point, we have been, everything's in Excel and I think we're at, I, apparently they actually make software where you can much more easily yeah. track barrels, mark barrel. You know what I mean? Like you could mark a barrel. It's like, let's make sure these 10 barrels don't get touched or used for anything because sure. we want to revisit them. And then you could write a note on the barrels. Like I sent this one to Garrett and yeah. I really liked it. And he thought it was dog shit. So I'm going to hold it for a year. And, send <laughs> and it I'm going to send it back to him and see that fucker picks it now. <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to say, I told you so. Um, that's cool. Um, all right. So I got about 40 more questions with single barrels, but we're going to, let's try this one. Uh, so we're at, um, I would tell you guys too, my, so the way I would I, do it myself, is I would start by only nosing them just because I'd want to see if I could identify which one I thought had the best nose. 
doesn't mean it's the one that's going to win, but I feel like right, you start tasting. Let's do that. Yeah. Let's, so, so, so let's, let's pass uh, we'll, out the rest. Let's, let's rank right, them. So. Let's rank them by nose first. So we're going to go uh, left to right. Left to right. 30, 44 is first. And then the next one we have is 30, 36. And then 20, 29, 20, 90. Or 27, 90. What did, you, what did you say? Ours is smudged. So we... Uh, I said it's yeah. Let's call it twenty nine ninety. Yeah, I mean, I would like to. I like to know what it is so we don't order the wrong barrel. If that's the one. Yeah, it's twenty nine ninety. Okay. It's very clear on mine. All right, so let's go. Let's go nose nose on these first. So we're going. This has got to be great for the, any listener. Just l- listen to just. Yeah, listen to people sniffing yeah. and be like, ooh, ooh. Mm, this one smells like <sighs> whiskey. I mean, what I find interesting about single barrels too is like, there's so much, the barrels can be so different from each other. And then I think so many people have different philosophies, meaning, you know, there might be one of these that actually shows as youthful. And then, you know, are you like, well, it's pretty cool that there's an eight year whiskey that's still showing these bright citrusy notes that I would associate with the younger whiskey, or are you like, if I'm picking something and trying to get people excited about an eight-year-old rye, then it better be something that really showcases maturity, you know, or am I trying to go something that's like in wine, we'd say like typicity, like true to form, or do you like going a little bit off the rails and trying to pick the odd thing, or do you go for the crowd pleaser? I mean, that's the stuff I find interesting about barrel picks because I think, it depends how you think about it. Like you can just go purely what you like and be like, I don't care what anyone else thinks. This is badass. Or are you more in the mind of your audience and thinking like, or even thinking what was the seven like, and do we want it to be like another, the other side of the coin or. Yeah. We have the conversation every time we do a pick, like, is this going to be a pick that's for the masses? It's going to be picked for us. Like, um, is this going to be a pick that we, are we trying to get this, flavor profile to be similar to the standard small batch or the standard single brother they put out or is this gonna be something that like we think this is cool you should drink it because we think it's cool or you should buy a bottle because we like it um it's literally a conversation we have every single pick that we do which i'm i'm happy you brought that up Um, there's a funny saying in the wines they would say you uh sell to the masses and drink with the classes (laughs) i like that so forty four for me on the nose is a very like the first the first one the first one the nose <clears throat> very uh high citrus the appley green appley kind of smell yeah I'm getting a lot of it yeah I think uh, the second and third one um, smell more alike than the first one did that's for sure mm-hmm. yeah which is a great observation to me too right because just alone the idea that like okay. 30, 44, there's something different about it. Yeah. Something unique. Mm-hmm. It's probably the ones that are like, you know, it's not that good, but we'll send it to Garrett anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, I think that the, the aroma, <laughs> um, I think the aroma of Just flew right past 30, 36 and 2990, like you said, are similar. Yeah. But I get more sharpness on 2990. Like the way I agree it's, that. like it's, to me, it's, I mean, we would, I would call that volatility. You know, it's like, or we might just say it's hotter, right? It's got 
it's that sharpness is making it hard to get underneath. Whereas I feel like 3036, if 3036 and 2990 are similar in terms of the types of aroma, I feel like 3036 is the better iteration of it because the aromas underneath are more accessible because it's not as sharp. I, so I, I like the aroma on uh, 3044 the most. I, I think it's got like a candied stone fruit. Like mm, I, that's pretty. Like a, like a candy apple, like John was saying, with the green apple or whatever. I feel like that's really, really nice. Um, and then I, I can't disagree with you guys. The, the last two are similar, uh, but I'm excited to try them and see what the differences are on the flavor as opposed to the aroma. You know like when you're like really hungry and you walk into like a pizzeria or like a hot dog stand and you, you get the smell of it right away and your mouth yeah. starts watering? Yeah. I My mouth is just, <laughs> just salivating. I just right wiped now. this rule off. Yeah. <laughs> I agree that you know, 2990 singes your, singes your nose hairs a bit it's more. It's a singer. Than, yeah. yeah. I, I, so, I feel that. I mean, the other thing that I find interesting, like this was the thing we really drilled down in with wine, is they would really teach you to be agnostic about aromas and flavors, meaning, you know, don't get into this like, well, I like cherries better than strawberries. Therefore, I like the one that smells like cherries. Mm. Right. That's kind of like a losing uh, way of thinking. So the way they would really teach us is it's all about structure and if you think about what is the highest form or you know if you think about whether you're talking about whiskey or wine or even beer what will people pay the most for what they're really paying for is complexity right so that was always sort of the benchmark of quality and i think based on what we went through the nose on 3044 is the most complex because people describe the most number of things right and so in a vacuum even if you're like and this is kind of an interesting concept that's hard for people to wrap their brains around, but is like worth thinking about, is the idea that connoisseurship is the ability to identify quality irrespective of your personal preferences, right? So if you were like, well, I don't like 3044 because I don't like the smell of citrus and apples and candy this, like that's not what matters. What matters is that it has the most complex nose, mm. if that makes sense. Oh, it totally does. I, I, that's kind of got to be something you have to train yourself to be like, all right, I love vanilla, butterscotch, and caramel in whiskey, um, bourbon, you know what I mean? But that doesn't necessarily mean that what he's saying, you know, as far as picking out a barrel, if you get that other stuff that I don't necessarily like, we talked about like maybe some of the chocolate or yeah. the notes, doesn't make it a worse barrel. It's just different. Makes it more interesting. Yeah. Right, yeah. Can we try these yet? Or? I yeah, let's go. When are we allowed, Sean? Let's go. Our, right, Ray Tanaka right. made us wait 20 minutes before <laughs> we tried it. <laughs> he made us wait a while. All right, so 30-44. Are we going 34-4 first? Mm-hmm. Okay. Left, left or right, right? Cheers, boys. Cheers. Cheers to Sean I, for joining us on this. This is I badass. cheers John, but he already tried it. John, John doesn't. he needs more. He already finished it. Now we're all out. Lordy. Sean, are you... Um, Oh, you answered my question right there. Are you so we're not we're not you're not spitting on this one. Mm. Oh, there he is. I will have a I'm gonna enjoy you should. whichever our favorite is. I will have a I'll enjoy a glass of. But during the assessing process, I will spit. Mostly out of habit. All right. All right, moving 30. on. Number two. So we didn't really talk about this one at all during our sensory 
like nosing session on that. Well, just that it was similar to well, right, but Sean was talking about how he likes it. He thinks it's you can get to the uh, smells a little bit better because it's less sharp than the third one. I thought it had some nice spice on the nose. Sean, do you have all um, of those forty-eight samples like uh, power ranked in like a Excel spreadsheet or a notebook of yours? Hmm. I mean, not a notebook I have handy, but I did rank. I it. Yes. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if I believe that answer. <laughs> I do. I'm just. Oh, no, they're ranked. It's it's okay. I mean, um, I'm no, just. I'm just. Yeah. I, I would like to know at the end mm-hmm. when we pick our barrel where you had it ranked versus you had to rank the other two that you sent us. Mm-hmm. This palate is a lot like the nose. It's really a spice driven. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. I just think. It seems, you know, it's funny, like, this is what I love about single barrel picks. I think if we tasted this one on its own and you were just hanging out, I think there's no part of you that wouldn't be like, this is, this is super tasty. No, we'd finish the bottle. Yeah. I, I think I, I prefer it to, I know we're not talking about which ones we prefer, but this one is, I like it a lot. My favorite part about doing single barrel picks is that when we get to the end of it, you're like, which one is the worst one? We're like, I don't know. They're all really good. Yeah. Like we're we're literally picking A pluses. Yeah. So we're we're it's super just nitpicky. Di- just different and unique. Yeah. All right. So now I'm going on to number three. I know Mike. Mike usually goes. So every time Mike and I do one of these, he gets he's finished and he's like walking around, looking at like the t-shirts and I I'm still on, <laughs> on the second pour. <laughs> the the gift shops are always so like alluring. I know all the lights and colors just it's draw just you in so like a moth. Long sleeve shirts. There's oh, there's a hoodie over there's there. A hoodie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any of those. Listen, the last distillery we went to, I was so distracted by us not like wrapping up that I didn't even get to buy anything. On the flight home, I bought like 140 bucks worth of swag that I could have bought in person and <laughs> saved shipping. <laughs> but because Where is that? Uh, a Bowman Smith. Yeah. A. Smith Bowman. A. Smith Bowman. A. Smith Bowman mm. in Virginia. Was, How was uh, that? I've never been there. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's If, it's, you, if you go, I'll go with you. I'd like to go. I was talking to Sean. I just want to piggyback. <laughs> just want to piggyback. I know, I know you weren't talking to me. Absolutely. Absolutely you're coming. Who am I going to find the fight with? So, Sean, uh, the swallow doesn't matter when you're tasting whiskey? Or do you get it, like, in the back of your throat where you can kind of get a sense? I feel like you get it in the back of the throat and I just feel like it's never, it's a really good question, but I don't, it's never let me down. I mean, I will always have a proper taste. Like if I'm working on blending and I'm spitting the whole time, if I get to the point where I feel like, you know, I've made my decision, I really do want to taste. I think there's a little something is missing, but you also, after you spit, you're getting some of it is dripping back down as well. It's definitely different, but how many samples will you try and spit and still drive? I don't think there's a limit. I don't you you know what's funny is like I've tried to explain this to people. You can't get drunk spitting. Yeah. You you immediately skip to this sort of semi hungover state. Like (laughs) not like a bad hangover. You're really selling your job. (laughs) Anyone wants to be a blender. Check this out. I will say, like, the the most fun part of my job is 
doing stuff like this, blending and tasting. But mm -hmm. it is probably also the worst part of meaning it's like that I'm not like, oh, woe is me, you should feel bad for me. But yeah, if you if you taste 40 cast strength samples in a day, like all you want is a Coors Light. I'll go for one of those right now. It sounds fantastic. Do you want me to grab you one? No. A banquet. No, no. A banquet sounds even better. I'll take a high life. Yeah, same High idea. life would be good. Yeah. Miller Light is fine. Number three had like a really nice like. <laughs> Let me really... just drink my Coors Light here. Oh. It looks empty. He's faking it. It's empty. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fake Coors Light. Over Number there. three's got like a really nice like um, not too bitey in the back, uh, like nice like soft spearmint mm. up front. Not too complex though. And I love I love when rye start turning into spearmint like uh, spearmint gum, mm -hmm. which I think as they age. Mm -hmm. I think you get it more. It's like you get it when they're young and you get it when they're old. And in the middle, it kind of is less so. So how do you guys like to, right over if, if it seems like everyone prefers um, 3044 and 3036, how do you guys get to your? Well, usually we argue about it for about an hour and then I make a rash decision. <laughs> what I like to do, <laughs> though, I guess you guys aren't really set up for it and I'm not set up for it either, but when I'm blending, is I make someone set me up blind and I leave the I leave the room and I just like because I feel like it's the only way you can truly reset Dude, what, I, is to say I'll, I'll set up for you guys I'll set up for you guys no 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 Johnny you're doing the blind oh yeah you're in you're yeah, doing the blind. yeah, yeah. John you don't get to do Garrett's this doing the blind okay. and you're doing the blind I'll right. set it up for you guys yeah let's do it and, we're, right. and we're back and we're back um, so these are all mixed around. I just kind of been moving them around, so they're marked on the bottom. Try not to touch the bottom because if we lose the marking on the bottom, I'm not going to know what they are. Guys, so listen, here's the deal. You got to go. No, I have to give you my blind tasting advice. Let's hear it. It's really hard to do. What you have to do, if you can do it, is the tendency is to try to want to figure out which is which, oh, and you no. need we to avoid which, which one's the best. Get out of your head that you're like, oh wait a minute, I'm pretty sure this one was the third one like it to the best of you can just like clear the mind come at it i've got three samples in front of me nose them first see if you immediately gravitate towards like which one has the best nose and then like do the same exercise we did before and just to the best of your ability stay away from trying to right, and then if you want to guess at the end you know by all means go there for it go. like it's fun but john, right, so john, john I want you to, nosing john, nosing I want you, the blind yeah don't tell me which one you like the which one you choose um, choose which one you think is the best rye. I feel like I can't. I can't really tell which one's which just on the nose. Really Perfect. Good. Yeah. Then you you, you Good. cleared the slate. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is just keep them in the same order. So when you hand them over the computer, Garrett is left to right as opposed to you being left to right. So this way at least you guys know exactly which one you're talking about. Johnny's deep in thought over here. He's chewing on number three. He's chewing on it. He's shaking his head. I feel like he's he's got an answer. Garrett has tried his first blind, and he's going in for number two. John, make sure you give him the play-by-play. -play. All right, Garrett's unbuttoning his shirt. <laughs> oh, God, no. To be honest, when I first went through all three of these, I thought all three of them were worthy of being a single-barrel pick. Yeah, so, I think they're all legit. So this is kind of fun. One criticism, if there's... I mean, there have been plenty of criticisms about Penhook, but one is that there were just too many wax colors and... It's hard for people to keep track, right? Well, we were talking about this a couple months ago, right? Yeah. So when you get this single barrel, it will be silver wax 
which is the same wax color as the vertical blend. Yes. That's that's one of the cooler colors in my opinion. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So yeah, so it's so now So they'll see it we as had a... that sky blue, which obviously you guys know. So that wax color has been retired. So then and then same for bourbon. They'll see the silver yellow. They'll know it's an eight and now we have the eight, but then it's also a pick. It says single barrel very clearly. Yeah, like but like but is the, a other eight it's like the eight year vertical rye, is that also gonna be silver? It's also silver, but it does not say single barrel. So it says single right. barrel very prominently. And they're different. To- the labels are different tones. The single barrel is a lighter silver on the label. Okay. So, but if someone's looking it's at the back bar wax. and sees a silver wax, like, oh, that's going to be the eight year rye. But then when they pull it closer, like, oh, this happens to be a single barrel. Correct. Even, even cooler. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's really smart. Anyway. Okay. Right. So I've got my picks. What? All right. So number, so, number so, one. All right. So, so are we doing three? I'm getting rid of one right away. Just, which which I'm, one I'm are you getting rid of? I'm ditching this one. John has his favorite. Did you pick a, a top two by chance? It was the middle one that I just tasted. Is your number is the one you picked? Yeah, second round. The, but the first yeah. round I did like number one. Okay, so John's picking C, which is number three. Okay, and which I'm, is different than what you had said. Than any of them. So well, you picked this. You picked C, which is the number three barrel. And you would pick number one after number like you said number one after we had all tasted them together. So after the blind, you're pick, you, you you picked pick number three. three. I did, huh? Yeah. That must have, I mean, it was really hot uh, to me the first ra- go around. Yeah. And maybe things settled down a bit because that tasted great to me. Right. That shit, does this there say? You go. That's an E. That's number two. Okay. So I'm throwing out two. Okay. You're getting rid of two? Yeah. And I think I was out, of, out on two before, too. Okay. So, so but then did John you pick so what I'm was number to, one? I'm going to, I'm going to, what John picked as well. Yeah. Yeah. So Sean, th- these guys are picking blind over here. Two nine nine zero. Two nine nine zero. Got it. That's the blind that got picked. Would you, Mike? You have input in this too, though. Yeah. Yeah. I, if you feel strongly about, I wouldn't sleep on. I mean, one three zero four four. If you if you if you put up a fight for that right now, not, not I would I would put a, f- a fight up for the first one. I think it's really really good whiskey. Um, I do too. I don't think that three is better in the flavor or the finish category and that's why i would go at number one i think three leads to like some great high proof cocktails mm. um with what it has going on in there but I, I i think one was the best whiskey we tasted i think one has more spearmint in it for sure i just think it was the best whiskey yeah i liked one in the first round i did a, and i actually loved one. me liking three in the second blind tasting is kind of shocking to me because i really didn't like it the first round I might I might switch to three oh four four no. That's so good. I think we're it's only appropriate. I think we're in like what I would call the classic single barrel conundrum. I find classic thirty forty four to be the most complex. I agree. And it's got some unusual but it's got like it's fruity, but it's also leathery and it's a bit minty and eucalyptusy and it's got spice. It has the most going on, but I don't know that it's the easiest to enjoy. Mm. And I think that 2990 is while still plenty bold, kind of like a softer, I'm not, I'm not saying it doesn't have spice. I'm just saying in comparison to um, 3044, it's kind of an easier ride. I think that the you're right the 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 first one the what do we what is that number 
have so many numbers in my head right now. 34-44. Yeah, that is most complex, and I think there's a lot going on in that. And I think that is a really, really good rye. I think that if we're selling it to our mass, and mm-hmm. uh, I think we're going to sell it better uh, if we don't sell that one, if we sell the uh, the twenty nine ninety. Yeah, I'm. I I, I like <clears throat> the twenty nine ninety as well. Um, I just I think I'm just more partial to the first one, but I wouldn't be upset about twenty nine ninety. My favorite thing about twenty nine ninety is that on the finish, there's a moment where you think it's like it's spicy and it's dry. Totally agree. Yes. And then it all of a sudden has this little spike of sweetness that comes back around. The, That's the sweet, really nice. The sweet. The sweet spearmint hits you at the like the eighty percent way through the, I, the, the swallow. I don't, I don't see how we don't pick twenty nine ninety then. Are you good with that, Mike? Yeah, I'm great with that. And you got to help me sell it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna sell it. All right, John, you good? I mean, that was I'm your good. pick. I, I that was agree. your pick. I agree. The first time time around, I mean, that was the first one we had. It was the three thirty forty four. Yeah. And and I'm personally like I I like the 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 sweetness of it, but I'm not a fan of like sort of that appley taste. Yeah, and I think the second time around, um, tasting that twenty nine ninety, I don't know. Like, I, I actually, I'm surprised I picked it over thirty six because I liked thirty six, as well the first round. But I think it was just like you just need it, you know, hit it a couple of times and then yeah, you just got hit. Bam! Couple, yeah, it's got hit. It. Bam! Then you can then you know. love it. Boom! I think we made our decision then. All right, perfect. So we can work all the details later. But so tell us where where does that barrel rank in your top forty eight? Well, I don't have that entire spreadsheet in front of me. Well, um, we'll cut this part out. <laughs> but I had thirty forty four ranked the highest. What? Number one? Yeah. Overall, of all of your picks. No, no, no. I was just oh, saying out of those three <clears throat> of this set. Okay. And then I had um, twenty nine ninety next. But keep in mind too, I think. I feel like when I do the selections, I feel like I can do an adequate job, but like you taste a lot and it's really fun for me to retaste. Certain things are going to stand out. And I think when you taste a lot, um, you know, a friend of mine does barbecue competitions like Memphis in May and the barbecue they serve at Memphis in May has nothing to do with like barbecue that you would serve because the judges are going from place to place and you have to like, blow their like you have to do something that's so dynamic to almost overwhelm their palate because they're tasting so many ribs you see what i'm saying yeah so like the level of flavor that they try and i guess the point i'm trying to make is i think that 2990 tasting these in this setting i really really enjoyed it and i could see where its charms are a little bit in like the subtleties I could see why, if you imagine, like, you guys just tasted these three. Imagine you had to, like, work your way through 30 barrels. Yeah, sounds like a great job, and I would like to be employed by you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you could see where something like 30, 44, because it's complex and got a lot going on, would, like, jump out at you. Ooh. I think you guys... So you're going to... I think you nailed it, and you actually... It's funny. You guys turned my opinion around because i couldn't help the bias of knowing which one i had rated higher prior yeah but then it's like you guys kept tasting and then the longer it went on the more i had to retaste and 
I think that's what's really fun about being able to spend time with it, which I don't get to do because I'm not doing a pick. I'm just giving people three options. Like, like, I guess you're welcome. I appreciate it. <laughs> so, Sean, I got a question. For, I got a question for you, Sean. When are you going to be in Chicago next? Yeah, that's a good question. I need to come in. Uh, I think we should do something uh, when the barrel lands. No, absolutely. Yeah, that's a hard yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. So, um, uh, like, so in, let's figure out when the barrel's going to come in. Yeah. And then we should do another one of those upstairs uh, tasting extravaganzas. Well, let's do an event somewhere. I don't care what, what what five restaurants we're at, but we'll do an event somewhere. It'll be live in front of people, and uh, we're gonna talk about Pinhook and try the barrel, and it's gonna be so good. I just like how Sean phrased that uh, for the the live show as a tasting extravaganza. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you could describe it better than that. What That's was fantastic. it? Was it a variance in execution or something? What was the? We'll have to re-listen to yeah. it to hear that. That was that was you a long time ago. It'll be fun too. The blend. The eight-year blend will have landed, so that will be like a fun oh, you gotta, side by side. Gotta, oh, yeah. Let's do it. Blind, up. blind for everybody. Yeah, blind. blind single barrel versus blend. Yeah. Do you guys have any other thing that you want to know about Pinhook or Sean? I, I just, like I, just wanna sh- I just want to share that the the two times we get to hang out with you, Sean, it's been an absolute joy. Your knowledge about what you do, your passion about what you do, comes through awesomely, and I like the fact that you picked all your single barrels randomly. Uh, as opposed to having them in a corner of a warehouse. And, and we've done some single barrel picks where they literally send you like barrel 295 through 298 and they're just sitting right next to each other. So I, I, I like what you guys do and I, I'm a super appreciative of it. And for our listeners, I think um, drinking, pin, drinking more pin hook than you do right now, you should be doing that. So I appreciate you, man. Thanks for your time, dude. It's, it's been great. I, I love it. Every, the, it's fantastic. It's my pleasure. Thank you guys so much. Um, I think I've definitely spent more time with you guys than any other, certainly restaurant group. Good. Mm, so good. you're doing it right we then. Have to, we, we have to just continue to enjoy our good times. I love it. And appreciate the fact that we all like hanging out together. And, you know, now it's like, that's the fun. It's the, it is, it's a, it might be a cliche, but it is the most fun part of this industry is really just the, the people you meet and the whiskey is delicious, but it's mostly just a vehicle for making all these awesome, you know, friendships and having these memorable experiences, or in some cases, experiences that you remember 94% of. <laughs> we'll take those experiences. The only reason this, this works is because you're a really good person and you're really good at your job. So uh, you have a lot of other ways to spend your time and we appreciate you spending your time with us. So thank you very much. Cheers, fellas. Thanks Cheers. a lot, brother. We'll see you next Friday. All right. When, hey, like I said, guest house is ready. <laughs> we'll, we'll be down there. Send me the address. I'm coming. <laughs> First of all, we'd like to thank our listeners, our families, and friends that support us. We couldn't do this without you. Subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Tell your friends about us. Big thanks to our producer, Johnny, in the Underground Studio. Also, a shout-out to Johnny Perona and Davenport Ed. That's the rockin' music you're hearing in the background. Thanks again, and we look forward to the next cocktail with you. Sean, is there anything Wait. that we shouldn't talk about? Um, I don't know, porn or... <laughs> that doesn't count. <laughs>